What's really empowering is if you really question the goodness of it and you look at the different kinds of arguments. So read the moral case for fossil fuels, but also read some of the critical stuff. And if you really think through it yourself, I think you will come to agree with the moral case for fossil fuels, but you'll have a totally different degree of conviction than if you just think, oh, well, it's it's good because I'm in it. The oil and gas industry, the driving engine of the world economy, delivering prosperity, innovation and abundance across the globe. Here are the stories of its key players, directly from the leaders themselves. This is Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, where real experiences are passed on from the leaders of today to the leaders of tomorrow. Here is your host, Paige Wilson. Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by AWS Energy. And of course, before I introduce this week's guest, I wanted to ask everyone to support the show by leaving a review on iTunes, and I'll read it on the air. All right. So I'm sitting here this afternoon with Alex Epstein, author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and founder of the Center for Industrial Progress. How are you doing? Doing great. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yeah. Alex, let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry or how you became introduced to it. Yeah, probably not the conventional route. Sort of, I became publicly known once I had developed strong opinions on fossil fuels. So, like, I have the book, The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. Some people have seen footage of me attending environmentalist rallies that are anti fossil fuels, holding up a giant I love fossil fuels sign. And so, people tend to think, oh, you, you must have started out pro fossil fuels or somehow connected to the industry. And I actually didn't know anyone in the industry. When I got started on this issue, I grew up in a liberal environment, Chevy Chase, Maryland, where I only learned bad things about fossil fuels. And so it was generally concerned about catastrophic climate change, thought, well, why can't we just replace them with solar and wind, all that kind of stuff. But the thing that really shifted me ultimately was I have a background in philosophy. And so I'm very interested in how do you think logically about important issues? And in 2007, I got exposed to some of the history of energy kind of randomly. I was researching something about John D. Rockefeller, mm-hmm. and I really realized energy is the industry that powers every other industry. And it made me think, wow, you know, the price of energy, that really matters because if, it if it's lower, then everything is lower cost. More people can afford to do more things in life. And if it's higher cost, then fewer people can do fewer things, in effect. And it just really made me think, okay, well, it must be it must be really important to get these decisions right. And I became really interested in, okay, we're mostly using fossil fuels. Are there benefits to that? There are side effects, obviously, but are there benefits? And I really became interested in how do you weigh the benefits and the side effects of the different alternatives? And to make a long story short, once I started doing that, I really concluded the benefits way outweighed the side effects and that I, I disagreed with just about everything I had heard because I just thought it was people were only looking at side effects and then they were taking a very catastrophic attitude toward them. And and I think if you take a logical attitude toward them, you end up being very pro-fossil fuels. And so that's what I became. Very good. Very good. So what made you write a book? I mean, you have a couple of them, but what really made you go, I need to spend time and I need to sit down, gather my thoughts and share them with the world on paper? Well, I've been a writer for a long time. So I I like writing in general, and I like writing as a means of expressing hopefully clear thinking. And so I had been writing 
various things about the fossil fuel issue in 2013, I put together some of my essays into a little pamphlet called Fossil Fuels Improve the Planet, but I didn't have a plan to write a book. Well, actually, my plan was I'm not going to write a book until I'm sure that there's demand for a book because I don't want to just do some vanity thing where I write something and eight people read it. And in part, I don't have a subsidized business model. I have a for-profit business model, so I actually have to go make money in different ways. So if I'm writing a book, you know, I may I have to figure out how can I actually make money. And so what happened is I was just writing essays and whatnot, and I started doing debates with people. And one prominent debate I did was with a guy named Bill McKibben, who is one of the leaders of the modern environmental movement, one of the leaders of the anti-fossil fuel movement. Listeners who find themselves frustrated with modern ESG, Bill McKibben is a big driver of the, at least the bad parts of that in my view. And so I challenged him to a debate. I told him I'd pay him $10,000 if he'd debate me in 2012. And people can watch that debate on YouTube if they just search Alex Epstein, Bill McKibben. But one consequence of that is that people really learned that there's this thing called the moral case for fossil fuels. And a high-level agent named Wes Neff, he reached out to me and said, hey, I think we can really sell this. And I thought, there's no way, you know, New York mainstream publishers are going to buy this. But he said, no, I think they will. And so we put together a proposal and then Portfolio, which is a major division of Penguin, bought it. And so then I wrote it. That's excellent. Excellent. So what are some of the challenges you had to face putting that together? Well, I have a different view of challenges than I think what most people expect. People, I think when they see the different things I do, that they'll often say, oh, it must be hard to get so much criticism or it must be hard to hold an I love fossil fuel sign when there are 100,000 protesters. And I don't find any of that difficult at all. What I find difficult is just clarifying my own thinking and explaining things clearly to others. Because when I, when I have a very strong conviction that I'm right, I feel an obligation to do justice to the material. And thinking just about what it's like to come from my perspective, I came from this perspective that makes me think you know, what the fossil fuel industry is doing. They're in effect producing health food and everyone thinks it's poison. And I'm one of the few people who can see this, particularly from outside the industry. And so I just feel, I tend to put a lot of pressure on myself to say, well, I really have to explain this well. So when I was writing the first book, I didn't have very much time to write it, about six months. It was just the, the whole challenge was just doing a good job with the book. And now I'm doing a revised version of the book where I'm giving myself more time. But the challenge is still just how to speak the truth clearly. Yeah. And because everybody has such a different language and understand, and everybody communicates differently. So yeah, I can definitely say that. So let's talk about you founding the Center for Industrial Progress. Right. So that came before the moral case for fossil fuels. That was in 2011. So I was working at the time, I was working at a think tank called the Ayn Rand Institute, named after the author and philosopher Ayn Rand. And I, there are a lot of benefits from working there, but I had this idea that I wanted to start my own thing that was very focused on having a positive alternative to the green movement. And this is a big theme of, of my work. It's one thing to say, hey, the green movement, the modern environmental movement, there are certain things wrong with what they're doing. And I think there are many things wrong. But the question is, what is the positive alternative to that? And so for me, the, the positive alternative, you can think of it in different ways. One is industrial progress, which is to say that human beings making themselves more productive with machine power, that is a good thing. It's not just a necessary evil, it's a necessary good. 
And part of that is industrial progress actually improves our environment. The in, a modern industrial environment is a far cleaner, safer, better environment to live in, you know, than a pre-industrial or non-industrial environment. And one of the key concepts that I've come to emphasize over the years in, in connection with industrial progress is the idea of human flourishing. And this is the idea that when we're evaluating different policies and different systems, we should be thinking about human flourishing, which means what allows human beings to live to their highest potential. And I think when most people look particularly at our environment, when they're thinking about the planet, they tend to think of it from what I'd call an unchanged nature perspective. So they think, oh, the best planet is the one where we have the least impact. And I have a very different view. I think the best planet is the one that's the best place to live for human beings. And that means we have to have a massive impact. It needs to be an intelligent impact. So you don't randomly impact, you know, you don't just blow up the Grand Canyon for no reason <laughs> or anything like that. But you need to impact the earth a lot so you can even enjoy the Grand Canyon in the first place. And before you know, modern machine power, virtually no one is enjoying the Grand Canyon. People are stuck in a very small environment and they're struggling for survival and they can't really protect themselves against all sorts of threats from nature. And this is why I really want to emphasize just we need to think of things from a human flourishing perspective and we need to recognize the value of industry, especially machine power, in making the earth an amazing place. I think of today's earth as the best earth that's ever existed. Most people in the modern environmental movement think of it as the worst earth that's ever existed. And that's because I'm on a human flourishing standard and they're on an unchanged nature standard. So even though it's the best earth for human beings, they still think of it as bad, which I think should call into question their whole philosophy. Yeah. Yeah. So let me get your, some insight from you on this whole pandemic thing and the future of our industry. Okay. What aspect of the pandemic in the industry? Oh, just we're overwhelmed with oil, for one thing, you know, the glut and everything is slowly starting to open back up. And there are just so many people in our industry that feel like the end is near, like do you understand what I mean? Yeah, that element. I mean, maybe an interesting case study of that is BP right now, because you have this guy, Looney, which I think people make jokes. That's kind of an apt name, depending on what you think of him, which I don't think of him very highly from what I've I've seen. He talks about, well, oil demand is peaking and stuff. And I want to use this just as an example of a broader point. There's something really wrong when you're in an industry and where you're going out of your way to say, hey, I think demand in, in our product is peaking. And if you just look, I'll give you my perspective on it. There are, like, you, you can kind of divide up the world into three categories. So one is I would call the empowered world. These are people who have abundant machine power. And I define that as having like 40% or more of what the US uses. So there are approximately 2 billion people in that situation. And then there's the unempowered world where they basically have no energy, no machine power. That's about 3 billion people. And then in the middle of that, including places like China, you could call it the barely empowered world, where the average person is way, way worse off than we are because it's still hugely a manual labor society versus a machine powered society, which is really what leads to prosperity, being a machine powered society. That's why energy is so important. So if you look at it from that perspective, Six billion people are using way too little energy for their life to be good. Oil is an unrivaled form of energy in terms of its versatility because it has such high energy density. It's so uniquely good for portable mobile power. And yet the oil industry should be selling this. You know, your marketing efforts are not irrelevant to the future. So 
the oil industry should be saying, look, the world is not empowered enough. We need more energy, not less. That should be priority number one. Let's talk about all these different opportunities and let's push to make sure that policymakers aren't depriving people around the world of opportunity. If you look at a lot of the projections that people are relying on, there's a lot of, I think, nonsense in terms of overestimating what solar and wind will contribute. And they're often called renewables. I call them unreliables since I think that's the essential <laughs> yeah. feature of them. But most of all, we should be promoting the idea that the world needs a lot more energy. Most of these forecasts are assuming they're treating it as a necessary evil that there's going to be more energy demand versus a necessary good. Again, Bill, and you just think about in the US, anyone listening to this, you are definitely in the empowered world and you may well be, you may be above average. So just to think of it as, I like thinking of things in terms of calories. So, cause you know, our body, like a manual laborer, our body, you know, uses 22,000, 2,500 calories a day. A manual laborer will use more. Let's say he does 2,000 calories of work on top of whatever he just needs to sustain his body. So in the US, our machines consume 200,000 calories a day. So that basically means we have 100 machine laborers working for us at all times doing work for us. Like what I define as the barely empowered world, that cuts off at about 70,000. So just over a third. And then you look at the unempowered world, you're talking about levels like 20,000, 10,000. People are overwhelmingly living a manual labor life. And in the US, even most of us who use 200,000 machine calories, I'll bet almost all of us who are at that level wish we were using more. And wealthy people are using more. That's why they have more convenient, comfortable, and generally healthy lives. And so in such a world, the energy industry should be promoting more energy, but they've totally bought into this idea that we need to use less energy and particularly less hydrocarbon energy. And so there's just this, what they're doing is they're just accepting these, all these forecasts that are based on the idea that the world should be using less energy. And in particular, the idea that the poor world should not become rich very fast. And that is a really immoral view. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for the industry to say, no, it is the real crisis. You want to talk about existential threat? What about 6 billion people not having enough energy? Like that's right. the existential threat, not that the temperature is going to go up another half degree Celsius. Yeah, totally agree with you on all of that. So with everything that you've gone through, your experience, your interactions with people, if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would it be? One is, and this is something I got from philosophy, is that I like to hold my ideas. Even when I get an idea from someone else, I like to understand it as well as I would understand it if I came to it myself. And the relevance of this, I think, if you're in the industry is, if you're working in the industry, you're in a little bit of a different situation than, say, I was. Because I was outside the industry, I had sort of a bias against it, if anything. But if you're in the industry, there's there tends to be a bias for it, understandably. Because you're in it, it's your job, it's your livelihood. But I would say, it, what's really empowering is if you really question the goodness of it and you look at the different kinds of arguments, so read the moral case for fossil fuels, but also read some of the critical stuff. And if you really think through it yourself, I think you will come to agree with the moral case for fossil fuels, but you'll have a totally different degree of conviction than if you just think, oh, well, it's, it's good because I'm in it. Not that people think that explicitly, but if you don't really think it through, then you're going to be biased and it's going to really hurt your ability to persuade others because the, the way to persuade others 
is to understand it so well that you understand why somebody who doesn't agree with it and comes from a totally different background really should agree with it. Excellent. Excellent. As an author, what book influenced you the most and why? Well, I mentioned before Ayn Rand. I used to work at the Ayn Rand Institute. Atlas Shrugged. So that's a novel, but it's a very philosophical novel, something like 1,100 pages, but I've read it many times. And it influenced me in many ways, but I really don't think that I could have come up with my ideas about energy without that book. Because one of the features of that book is it really glorifies industrialists. And this it's written in 1957, but it's, it's super relevant today. And what it really shows is that industrialists are people who make the world a better place because they, they transform nature in such a positive way. And that can be, you know, they make modern agricultural machinery that can make you know, one man do the work of 700 manual labors by using a modern combine harvester, or there it can be people who invent new forms of metals or new forms of energy. But it's really viewing industrialists as people who have a positive impact on the world versus the modern environmental movement is all focused on only the side effects of what industrialists do. And they treat it as if industrialists make the world a worse place. So just having that pro-industrial, pro-human perspective from the time I was 18 really prepared me once I learned the facts about fossil fuels to take a much different perspective on them than most people do. Good deal. What's your most used business tool? I use, maybe this will be useful to people, maybe they won't. I use something. And so just to give people some context. So my business is, you know, I write books, I give speeches, and then I do consulting on messaging for different companies. So if there are organizations, so like, let's say they want help passing a pipeline, just give a random example, like I would help them come up with messaging for stakeholders. And all of this is to say that a lot of the work that I do is content creation. So I have a content creation based business, which obviously not everyone does. But one tool I use a lot is called Checkvist, C-H-E-C-K-V-I-S-T dot com. And it's an embedded list website. And what it's really good at doing is organizing information. So when I'm outlining my book, I do it there. When I'm planning my week, I put items in Checklist, and they're just super, it's super easy to move things around just with your keyboard. And it's super easy to, what you can think of as integrate things. So if you have five thing, five points that come under one big point, it's easy mm-hmm. to put them under and then you can collapse it. So you don't see the details, but then you can expand it easily. So that's something that I use. A lot. Very useful. Very nice. And I don't believe this is applicable, but who is your most respected competitor? Well, yeah, I wish I had more competitors. That'd be a lot more fun, right? <laughs> well, I mean, in a sense, there are kind of two categories of what you could call competitors, because there would be people who are making something like the moral case for fossil fuels. And so in some sense that if people wanted that viewpoint, they'd be competing for book sales or speech sales or consulting sales or something like that. But the real situation there is we just need hundreds of times more people doing this. And there's not some small, I mean, you know, we're talking about the energy industry. This is the biggest industry in the world, pretty much. So I don't think of it as, I want more people who agree with me, but I'd say some of the ones that I like and no particular order. And I have a podcast, by the way, Power Hour, where I interview some of these people. But there's let's see, Robert Bryce, author of Power Hungry, Michael Schellenberger, author of Apocalypse Never, Bjorn Lomborg, author of False Alarm. Those The last two books are pretty recent books. Patrick Moore, the co-founder of Greenpeace, who's written some good books. Matt Ridley, author of The Rational 
optimist. So those are some good ones there. And then in terms of the opponents, I really wish there were more honest opponents, but I think maybe I kind of think of a nemesis in a certain way, but that I respect a lot as Elon Musk, because he's somebody who's very, just an amazing engineer and is a very good thinker in certain ways, but I think is also well, particularly in his advocacy of solar, I think it's very problematic, particularly because I live in California, and I think advocacy of solar here is contributing to blackouts and rising energy prices. But like Elon is somebody who I think of as really smart, who has wrong views on certain things, versus a lot of the people on the other side who are leaders I think of as malicious and having wrong views. Yeah, yeah. He's, he's pretty open-minded for the most part. It's something else I appreciate about him. But what would you say is your most important lesson learned? Wow, that's a broad thing. And I should have I should have used my earlier one for that question. I mean, so I, I talked before about the importance of really thinking through the ideas one has to the point where you feel like, oh, you came up with it. You understand it as well as if it was really your idea, even if you got it from others. I think another lesson is to, when explaining things, to always assume there's a better way of explaining it and to always take the blame when the explanation doesn't work. So it's easy to say, let's say I explained something to someone, say even I'm talking to Elon Musk and I'm trying to explain to him, hey, this is why I don't believe in climate catastrophe. And I point out, hey, you know what? You think it's possible for us to change the climate of Mars to be livable, but you think that if our climate changed two degrees, it would be unlivable. Don't you see there's kind of a contradiction there? And in fact, like the more technology we have and the more energy we use, the more we can become masters of climate. It really doesn't matter too much what the exact climate is. It matters what's the state of technology for dealing with climate. Let's say I try to make that case to him and I don't succeed. One way is to think, oh, that guy is, he's being a jerk. You know, he's just stuck in his ways, but that doesn't really give me anything because then I'm just blaming it on the other person and I'm not going to improve versus if I say, well, maybe there's another way of getting through. And it's true that sometimes there's not, but I find that that discipline of assuming there's a better way and looking for what I could have done better, that leads to a continuous evolution in my ability to explain things. And so whether I'm doing it's my own work or client work, I just find that I've had this program running in my head for 20 years about, okay, how can you explain this better? How can you explain this better? And over time, I've gotten better at explaining things, and I've been able to persuade more people. And I assume that in five years or even one year, I'll be a lot better. And at some point, maybe there'll be a breakthrough, and then a lot more people will come on board at once. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. You're very critical on yourself instead of placing blame on others, but it's not harsh. It's meant to make you grow. And I really appreciate that about you, Alex. Why do you think your role? now is important to the future of oil and gas? Well, in part, I think the future of oil and gas is so important. As as I mentioned, I really think of the world as underpowered. We don't get that perspective, but it's so crucial to have that perspective. Just remember, we're talking right now. I I think you said there's a storm where you are, so I don't want to act like we're all in comfort at the moment exactly. And I'm in California where it hasn't been fully comfortable for everybody for a while. And also we're in lockdown still, which has all sorts of problems with it. But nevertheless, just think of it. There are billions of people around the world who are breathing in, you know, fumes from wood and animal dung right now. There are people right. who are spending hours a day gathering that wood and dung or gathering dirty water or doing manual labor on farms to just 
barely sustain themselves. Like this is the world is unempowered still. Most of the world is still unempowered. And so if you think about with oil and gas, statistically, the number one and number three sources of energy in the world and sources of energy that people could use a lot more of. So I think part of what I have to say is just to give people this human flourishing perspective to step back and say, no, wait, the world needs more of what we're doing, like a lot more. And that can sound crazy if compared to what you hear, but if you really think about it, if you really realize that empowerment determines human flourishing and most of the world is unempowered, it's obvious that the world needs more. It doesn't mean you're against alternatives, but it means that you got to be against alternatives that aren't cost effective, including reliable. Because obviously, if people are too poor to afford natural gas or coal, they're not going to be able to afford some unreliable scheme that somebody concocted with solar and batteries. So as a podcaster, what's your favorite podcast? Well, actually, the new one, I, I'm trying to think. I, I think the Tim Ferriss show is really good. So when he has guests on that I like, I think of he's a really exceptional interviewer. I mean, with everyone, you can see that whenever something is great, just he puts so much effort into it. It's really unbelievable how much he you know, researches the guests. I mean, I certainly do nothing like that on my own podcasts, uh, although I think th those are valuable, but that one. And then there's a new one I started listening to called Deep Questions with Cal Newport. And that's a thinker I draw people's attention to in general. He wrote a book called Deep Work, which is my favorite of his books. And as a content creator, I found it very, very useful. And then I'd say, check out Deep Work. And if you like Deep Work, you will probably like the podcast Deep Questions. Excellent. And and go ahead and feel free to plug your podcasts. Oh, sure. So my two podcasts are called Power Hour. And if you're searching that, I think there are other podcasts called Power Hour. So you just search Power Hour with Alex Epstein, and I'm sure that'll come up. And then my other one is called The Human Flourishing Project. And that's much more about just individual flourishing, happiness, self-development, productivity. So both of those are wherever podcasts are. And then also on my YouTube channel, if you search youtube.com slash improve the planet, we post them there. And then just one other thing, maybe the best thing if you're interested in more information, our website is industrialprogress.com. And the main thing there is we have an email list. So if you just go to industrialprogress.com, you can sign up for the email list. And that way you'll get a weekly update with everything that I've been up to if you're interested in that. Oh, perfect. 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 And, and your books. Yeah. Well, so the main one is Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. So you can get that on Amazon. I would just recommend getting that one. And then, oh, there's one other thing. I can't, I've been promoting this so much, but it's not a book, but it's hopefully a very useful resource. It's called energytalkingpoints.com. And it's a resource that I've created to be particularly timely for the upcoming election so that whether you're a citizen or you're a candidate, you can have really tight, powerful, well-referenced talking points on different issues. So if you go to energytalkingpoints.com, it's super easy to use. You'll see just on a very wide variety of issues from climate change to fracking to the Biden plan to energy poverty. I think you'll see some points that will be useful to you in your own thinking, but also in persuading others. Oh, that's great. Yeah. I'm, I know so many people in different you know states, especially like Colorado, that have issues trying to not necessarily persuade, but just have the just start the conversation about how oil and gas isn't as bad as it's, you know, it seems or how it's been. Yeah, maybe shown. even it's good. Yeah, that'd be great. I've heard a lot of that just by going to different conferences and just, you know, people reaching out and just, you know, 
really convicted by not being able to talk about it and being almost embarrassed by being part of the industry. So that's great. I really appreciate that, Alex. If people want to reach out to you, how can they go about doing that? So there's my mailing list, industrialprogress.com. And then you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. And you're also on LinkedIn? I am on LinkedIn. I've recently come to like LinkedIn. I never used it before, but I was on another oil and gas podcast, David Ramsden Wood, and I got a flood of people signing up to my LinkedIn. And so I'm a very promiscuous LinkedIn acceptor. So if you send me anything on LinkedIn, I will become your friend or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, But I found a lot of great people. He's really big on it, but I found... I post mostly on Twitter, twitter.com slash Alex Epstein, but I've, I started reposting or posting a lot on LinkedIn as well, particularly because there are so many industry people. And I really, it's a big passion of mine for industry people to understand why what they do is good. And also to your last point, how to explain it clearly to others. So it's, I get a lot of good feedback on LinkedIn and I've been promoting energytalkingpoints.com a lot on LinkedIn. And in fact, I've seen several people on LinkedIn, at least who have been using the points from energytalkingpoints.com, which that's what they're there for. So it's really cool to see people spreading those to their networks. Oh, that's fantastic. Great. All right. So that concludes this episode. So just remember, it's up to you to open the next door. Now here's Savannah with Events on Deck. Hey, everybody. It's Savannah from OGGN, and here are the events on deck for October 2020. The first five events I'm going to list off are all online, so to start off the month, we've got the Women Offshore Conference, which is an online interactive event on October 2nd and October 9th. Second, we've got SparkCon, which stars our very own Mark LaCour as keynote speaker, and that one starts on October 5th and goes through the 9th. Third, we have the OilCom Conference and Exposition from October 13th through the 15th. Fourth, we have the Ignite Talks with Cognite from October 27th through the 29th. And to close off the online events, we have the SPE Annual Technical Conference and Exhibition, or ATCE, on the same dates as the Ignite Talks, which is October 27th through the 29th. Next, these two events for October are in person. First, we have the Energy API Golf Tournament on October 12th at the Kingwood Country Club. And next, we have the Energy API 30th Annual Sporting Clays Tournament on October 30th at the American Shooting Center. Lastly, and most importantly, we have our OGGN live streams. This month, we have three going out, so make sure to tune into those. First, we have Maintaining Critical Infrastructure During Lockdown on October 1st. Next, we have Material Reductions in Downtime that flow to the bottom line on October 15th. And last, we have Strategic Opportunities to Right-Sizing GNA and Achieving Free Cash Flow on October 29th. Now, these dates for the live stream shouldn't be changing, but they may, so make sure to keep up to date on these events by checking out the OGG on Facebook, LinkedIn, or website for more info. That should be all for October, so I hope you guys have a great month, and thank you for tuning in. Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.